First John chapter four, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray. Father, hallowed be your name. Exalted be your name. In this place and around the world, that the creation who is redeemed would truly and fully worship the Creator. That the redeemed would worship and exalt the Redeemer. That the guilty would praise the one who is holy, who stood in our place, who took on our chastisement, who took on our judgment who took on the fullness of your wrath your righteous and holy wrath this is a gift that we will never be able to repay it's a gift that we struggle to even fully comprehend in its fullness And I pray that tonight as we delve into this verse in your holy word, that you would bring greater clarity and therefore deeper, fuller gratitude and praise. Bolder testimony. And for those who for a lifetime to this point have rebelled to continue to be Lord of their own lives, who you might give ears to hear and eyes to see new life, that there be true confession of sin and faith in Christ for life eternal. We love you. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is love? John says, in this is love. Before we dive into what this is, in this is love. Let us consider the context by looking at a couple verses prior to verse 10. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. What is love? God is love. God is love. Love is not just from God, that's too narrow. Love is not just an action of God. Love is God's nature. It is who He is. One may know something about human affection or love, but apart from the grace of God, no one can know anything about true love. Real love, divine love, is like God who is holy and just and perfect. If you want true love in your life, you need a living relationship with God. But outside of faith in Jesus Christ, 
outside of God's saving grace and divine intervention, outside of the perfect blood of Jesus poured out on the cross, we don't have a relationship with God. Therefore, we do not know true love. Not only do we not know it, therefore we cannot love God or each other with true love. This is what is meant in 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If you know God and are redeemed and reconciled to Him, then you know true love. If you don't know God, if you're not saved, if you have not trusted Him, then the love you have and know is a counterfeit love. Because love is God. And apart from Christ, you are His enemy. You are at enmity with Him. How I pray you see that apart from Christ, you do not know God. And therefore, you do not know true love. When John says in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God. Do you see what he means by that? with the help of the context surrounding the verse, apart from God, we cannot love God. We cannot initiate or pursue God in love apart from God. For God is love. Do you see? And those in sin, those who are still Lord of their own lives, those who are apart from Jesus Christ as Lord, are rightly separated from the Holy God. I've heard many people of the year speak of their choosing God, saying something like, isn't it great? I finally got my act together and chose God instead of the sin that always was tempting and damaging my life. But we must see that we didn't choose Him without Him. We, we've seen in Scripture time and time again We could not choose Him if we wanted to because of our slavery to sin. And oh yes, Scripture also says we didn't want to either. Romans 3, 11 and 12, No one understands or seeks for God. No one does good, not even one. Romans 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Do you see that our depraved, fleshly mind is hostile to God? We are not just for God in our sin. We are actively against God because of our sin. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is often communicated in our day in terms of making mistakes or making poor choices. This is an insufficient view of sin. Any decision to sin is indeed a poor one. But what we must do business with is that it is an act of disobedience against a holy and deserving God. R.C. Sproul says it well. He says, sin is cosmic treason. Meaning, even the slightest sin that a creature commits against the, the Creator is an act of violence or betrayal to the Creator's holiness, glory, righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules. It's an act of treason against the cosmic king. 
littlest offense. Treason, one of the highest offenses of the land. The littlest offense. James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You might say that seems like a really high standard. But God is that high. He's very, very high. He's the highest. Not only do we fall absolutely short of the glory of God, not only do we not have the love of God to love Him when we are in our sin, but we are spiritually dead. We are enslaved to our sin, therefore not capable of spiritual discernment or spiritual life. The Bible says that the the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 In our sin, we earn, our wage is spiritual death. It's our reality. We are enslaved to it. Every one of us outside of new birth, new spiritual birth, that is the work of God in our lives, everyone outside of that is our slaves to sin. And the Bible says this a lot. We are slaves of sin, it says in Romans 6.17. We're in the snare of the devil, it says in 2 Timothy 2.26. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Not sick. The Bible says you are dead, spiritually dead. In our trespasses and sin, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Because of our sin, we pursued our own glory and in doing so made war with the one true God and his deserved glory. We became his enemies and deserved his forever righteous wrath. Selfish Man-made love, that counterfeit love I spoke of earlier, that thing that apart from God, that we claim to be love, we have to understand that selfish man-made love, that, that won't do. And so herein lies our greatest problem. We cannot save ourselves from spiritual death. Our selfishness will not do what it takes Our self-righteousness, our best efforts, fall far too short. And our sacrifice, even if we're willing to really buckle up and get after it, also fall far too short of the perfection and holy high standard that is God. Even the old covenant system that God put in place was not to ultimately satisfy his wrath on sinful man, but was to point mankind to the one sacrifice that would be sufficient. The Messiah. The Redeemer. Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.4 says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So that system is insufficient, although it points to Christ. And so we're desperate. Mankind is desperate for the promised one, the Messiah, the only one who can save us from our wretched, condemned state as enemies of God who are weak, ungodly sinners. Praise God for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And praise God for the cross of Jesus Christ. Look with me at the next part of our verse. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the good news that we are here to see and understand and I pray trust in tonight. 
This is why Christians like myself, followers of Jesus, redeemed by the grace of God, this is why we call the darkest day in human history Good. Good Friday. Not Black Friday. Not Red Friday. Not Bad Friday. Good Friday. Good Friday is the annual remembrance of the day Jesus was brutally beaten and hung on the cross and died. The cross is the most widely known and popular symbol in the history of the world. When we see the cross, we are reminded of Jesus. And not just his life, but his death, and specifically his death by crucifixion. Death by crucifixion being one of the most horrendous, despicable, painful, agonizing forms of death. In speaking of crucifixion, Cicero, who declared that Roman citizens should not even think of the cross, should not speak of the cross, it was altogether too horrifying for decent Roman citizens to even contemplate or utter. Crucifixion was so horrendous that they had to create a, wor- a word to explain it. That word is excruciating. Today, when you and I use that word, excruciating, it, it is an effort to describe something very, very painful and awful and undesirable. Understand, the word excruciating literally means from the cross. It is my point about what makes tonight so unique. When considering the crucifixion of Jesus, Christians, including myself, declare it good, good news. Actually, the best news we've ever heard. But how could this horrific tragedy be good news? Let's go back to the passage I read moments ago. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, speaking of our reality of our, in our sin, you were dead in the trespasses and sins, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But consider verses 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Consider the words of Paul in the letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how God shows his love in the most amazing way. We didn't do anything. We didn't get cleaned up. We didn't get it right. We didn't get into position to be saved. While we were his active enemies, Christ died for us. Think of the depth of love you have shown your most active enemies. Not just the neighbor you kind of don't like or the in-law that you have to put up with. I'm talking people who are against you. 
This is what John is emphasizing in our verse tonight. We must see it and savor it. Oh, how I pray you see it. Because when you do, it will wreck you. And cause you to trust in him. And praise him with all of your life. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I'm going to talk Sunday about the potency of the fact that it was his son. But I want you to see tonight, Jesus, God the Son, eternal, glorious, perfect, all-powerful, puts on flesh. And he is so perfect in every way that only he can satisfy our past, present, and future sin. There's nothing more important than the death of Jesus. It is literally the crux of human history and the crux of our faith. Without Jesus' death, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, there is no relationship with a good, holy, and just God. So when it says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Consider the weight of what God did to love us. He sent his son, his one and only begotten son, God the son, eternal, holy, all-powerful, who took on flesh to add what is fully divine, what is fully man so that his flesh could be torn off of him. So that he could be sacrificed as the needed atonement for our sin. The needed substitute Only him or us will take on God's wrath. There must be, there had to be a perfect spotless lamb. But you got to realize it's not just about his body hurting. That, that, that is the short-sighted view of this night. The horrific nature of his death is truly horrific. But the deep extent of God's love goes further. Even with all that Jesus was put through physically, as horrific as it was, as intolerable as it was, so bad that many others in that position would have died at many places, often did die at many places along the path. It was so hard and horrific. The real weight of what Jesus is carrying, the real cost on his flesh, and is not the physical beatings or the hanging on the cross. It is the wrath of God being poured out for our sin upon him. When he is in Gethsemane in the garden, he's distressed, he's troubled. My soul's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He says, he's sweating so hard, he's bleeding, his sweat is full of blood. It's not the beatings he's overwhelmed by. It's the, it's the weight of our sin. It's the wrath of God that would be put on him. And when he prayed in that garden that night, he didn't say, keep me from the cross. 
He said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The cup he's talking about is the cup of wrath. It's what deserving sinners are due for eternity for betraying the holiness of God. It is his judgment and righteous condemnation on sin. It is not a momentary weight. It is an eternal weight. It is a weight that the flesh of Christ was overwhelmed with sorrow at its coming. But the good news of this night The reason why Christians call this Good Friday is because Jesus didn't bail out. He stayed the course. So I testify tonight the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which saves and sets free, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What what does it mean, the propitiation of our sins? It means he substituted himself in our place. He, He died to pay the penalty due our sin. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He substituted himself in our place. We call this the atonement, the atonement of Jesus This is what propitiation means. Propitiation means the the righteous wrath of God that is due our sin is appeased by a suitable gift offered in its place. It is the appeasing or averting of God's divine anger. It is only the work of Jesus' perfection taking on our deserved wrath on Himself that makes it possible for the justice of God to be met and then therefore the forgiveness of God to be given. Pastor Kevin DeYoung says it like this in a recent article he wrote, propitiation is used in the New Testament to describe the the pacifying, placating, or appeasing of God's wrath. The easiest way to remember the term is that in propitiation, God is made pro-us. Propitiation has a relational component to it. Christ's death not only removed the moral stain of sin, it removes the personal offense of sin. Tonight we understand and celebrate that the God of the Bible is not appeased with a bribe, but with his own blood blood of his son the God of the Bible though justly angry with sin and sinners freely and willingly sent his only son to be our propitiary sacrifice out of love the death of Christ did not make God love us the electing love of God planned for this once and for all, this sacrifice of Jesus. He did this for our good and for His glory. Amen. Church, this is 1 John 4.10. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son 
to be the propitiation for our sins. The God who has always been for His people from eternity past sent His Son in time to be the wrath-absorbing sacrifice that we might enjoy peace with God for the ages to come. Ages unending. Praise the Lord. Paul says it well in Romans 8.1, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This means the wrath of God no longer sits on those who are in Christ. In this, the holiness of God is respected. The justice of God is satisfied. And we're set free. And so we sing and we live for him and we worship him. It gets better. Not only did he take on our deserved wrath, but it means we've received his righteousness and therefore we're declared righteous and justified in God's eyes. Romans 5, 9 says that we are justified by his blood. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. My death for his life, my sin for his righteousness, my condemnation for his salvation, my failure for his success, my defeat for his victory. This is the wonder, this is the beauty of what Jesus accomplished on the cross of Calvary on our behalf. His perfect blood shed on the cross is the righteousness we who trust in Christ are covered with. So when God in all of his holiness looks upon you and I to consider if we get to enjoy his glory, have communion with him, he sees Jesus' perfection and righteousness and he declares us justified if you can hear my voice tonight repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation this is the only way to be saved this is the only way to God if not you will pay the price for eternity for your sin and so church, see the beauty of Colossians 1, 13 through 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us, I like to say transferred us, into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. To redeem means to obtain, to set free, by paying a high price. People pay a lot of money or they wait a long time to adopt a child. The price Jesus paid for us is, is infinite. It's, it's ongoing. It's eternal. I pray you see the depth of God's love in your adoption, in the price God paid to have you. If you ever felt unimportant, church, if you ever felt unloved, Beloved, if you ever felt unwanted, adopted, children of God, you should never feel this way if you are in Christ. Instead, see the depth of the love of God for you in His specific choosing of you. And in the extent of the payment that was made to make you forever a part of his beloved. John 15, 13, greater love is no, none than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. This is the good news of God's amazing love set on undeserving people. Church, see the Savior's love and what he gave up for us. 
see it in the depth of his reach, not only in his incarnation to take on flesh, but in his sacrificial substitution, his death on the cross on our behalf. Oh, how I pray you see God's gracious love in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See him laying down his life, a life that is deserving of all glory and fame and respect and honor. He laid it down to save us. I pray you come to know this love so that you can then genuinely turn to love one another in a way you never could before. Like John says in this verse, in this is love. You want to know true love? True forgiveness? True satisfaction? You must know Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. Revelation 15.3 For all eternity we will sing the song of the Lamb who was slain. Psalm 18.46 The Lord lives and blessed be my rock. The exalted be the God of my salvation. Are your feet firmly grounded on the rock? Jesus Christ on the God of your salvation when the temporary is crumbling all around you when injustice when blood when immorality is literally raining down in your life the storm is raging do you remember who you are in Christ the God of your salvation do you remember the extent of his love for you. My job as your preaching pastor is to constantly reorient your heart to the Lord of your salvation, the Lord of joy. To preach the word in all its fullness so that your heart stay full of truth and wonder at the work of God. So that you too would look and see, and wonder, and be astounded at what God has done to redeem you and continues to do in your life. So that your faith would be full, and your joy complete. There is no name under heaven by which you can be saved than Jesus. Tonight I stand before you, truly worried for some of you, because you, you have no sense of urgency. You're hearing these things, but they're, you're not wrecked by them. When you look at the cross of Christ, you need to see, you need to realize that either Jesus died for you and suffered in your place, or you will suffer for eternity. I promise this is the truth. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that all the believing into Him... Do you believe into Him? Do you trust everything to Him? If so, you will not perish, but have eternal life. The flip side is if you don't believe into him, you will perish. If you don't believe into Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins according to the scriptures, you will pay the full freight of the wrath of God due your sin for eternity. For the rest of days, on and on and on. I beg none of you to leave here tonight, enemies of God, that you do real business with these things. You hear Jesus clearly when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
There is no hope apart from the cross of Jesus. Your sins are real. The wrath of God is real. Hell is real. And so is the forgiveness of sin through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Amen? At the conclusion of Good Friday, when Jesus died for our sins, when Jesus cried out from the cross, It is finished. A Roman officer who stood nearby exclaimed, Truly this was the Son of God. On that Friday night, Jesus cried out from the cross. On this Friday night, will you cry out to him and confess your sin and trust your life to him and be saved? Will you proclaim that Jesus is Lord, the true and eternal Son of God, the only way by which you be saved, the only way to be restored to the holy God? I pray it be so. To conclude our Good Friday service tonight, we're going to join our voices in worship. We're going to provide some time for you just to be in prayer, to do business with these things. And we're going to testify of the gospel in a different way. Not in the singing of the gospel, not in the reading of the gospel, not in the preaching of the gospel, but in the physical testimony of the gospel in the Lord's Supper. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 He says, For what I have received from the Lord, I deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, tonight we're going to proclaim the Lord's death and the Lord's Supper until he comes. The symbolism of the bread and the wine hit a little closer tonight, being that it's Good Friday. And their intended aim The bread points us to the life of Christ, the body of Christ, the one who is the true bread of life. We praise God for the life of Christ tonight. For Jesus' perfect obedience, without which we would have no hope, without which we would have no spotless lamb. He was perfect. And he willingly was broken for you. As you eat the unleavened bread tonight, consider the dying body of Jesus as he hung on the cross, as Jesus suffered on the cross and shouted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus in that moment is making atonement for your sin. Then Jesus says, I thirst. He says these things because his body's dying. His body's thirsty. He's bearing the weight of the wrath of God for our sin. Consider with me the desert he's in as he pays for our sin. As the wrath of God is poured out. So when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm chapter 22 verse 1. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the words of that psalm surely are on Christ's holy and all-knowing mind. What else does that psalm say? In verses 14 and 15, it says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. And you laid me in the dust of death. Do you hear the depth 
of what he took on to love us and redeem us. As you eat the bread, as you, as you experience its dryness and the little sampling of longing for something liquid, take that away. That's just a taste. It's just a symbol. It just points towards the depth of what he did. Think of what he went through. Think of how thirsty he is. Understand that Jesus died of thirst so that you and I could have the cool living water. He experienced the ultimate thirst and dryness on our behalf and died in torment so that we could have the cool water of eternal life with God. The living water welling up to eternal life. Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that he could install a new covenant between God and his people. One made with his perfect blood. Church, don't let the Lord's Supper ever become routine. I encourage you to pray, meditate, slow down. Meditate on the love of God. Meditate on the costly grace given for you, for your salvation. This is our time to remember and to say thank you. Church, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then do what he's commanded you to eat and drink and testify of what Jesus has done on your behalf. If you, beloved, have been caught up in sin, if you've been called for sin, then don't make light of this. Paul brings warning in this passage. You don't just go through these emotions, but that you would do business with your sin, and you would confess it, and you would truly repent from it. Do you need to perform to be forgiven? No. Do you need to avoid the Lord's Supper? No, you need, you need to be reminded of the power of Christ and the will of God to honor Christ so that you turn from your sin. You stop, you stop playing with it. You stop delaying. You cut its head off. You confess it. And you do what you need to do to be accountable to take up a new path that honors the Lord so that your testimony honors the Lord. Let, let the gospel, let the Lord's Supper tonight remind you who you are in Christ so that you stop living in hypocrisy and unrepentant sin. Do business with the Lord in that tonight. Pull a brother or sister aside if you need to confess your sins to another and invite them to walk with you. If you're here tonight and you have not yet trusted your life to Christ, you don't belong to Him, you're not saved, you're still the Lord of your own life, then this, this testimony is not your testimony yet. I pray one day it is. I pray that tonight it would be. I pray that tonight would be that night you would confess your sin and lay down your life to the Holy God and be saved. And if that's true, then dine. And tell someone celebrate and find your way to the baptism waters and announce that you belong to him no longer to yourself guests listeners who are not saved you do not need to perform you do not need to get right that is a self salvation that is not how you will ever be saved you must just be dependent on God you must yield to him and him alone you must see this gospel and it must move you. It must overwhelm you that you see the depth of your sin and you see the beauty of his grace and it claims you. And if not yet, then watch. 
and watch the testimony of these people, see that they have not performed one thing. The only difference between them and you is that they belong to Jesus and you don't yet. That God has claimed them, given them saving faith, that they've died to themselves and yielded to him. That's it. Teenagers, kids, this is for you too. This is for you to do business with tonight. The best part of your weekend this weekend is that every horizontal plan you would have would be completely turned on its head because Christ is wrecking you tonight with saving faith. I pray it be so. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So we don't force, we don't manipulate, we don't play church. We preach the gospel. We look to hear the gospel. And in God's perfect timing, when you do, we're saved by the gospel. And then we go testify to it. Church, we're going to testify to it in the Lord's Supper tonight. I want to pray. I'm going to ask the band to come up and lead us in a couple closing songs. And uh, I want to encourage you to pray. I want to encourage you to be still. Think about these things. And then when you're ready, church, to go to the table, there's four around the room. Take a piece of the unleavened bread. Take a cup of the wine, or if you have personal preference for the juice, and make your way to a place where you can just Praise Him and thank Him and testify and consume those things as you're ready and worship Him. In a couple songs, I'll come up and we'll look to conclude our evening. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for this time and place. We thank You for this gift of grace, this atoning sacrifice, that is so, so wonderfully good good news. We thank you for your perfect plan, plan of redemption, a covenant of redemption. We thank you for the markers and, 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 and the generations and, and the testimonies that, that point and prepare for the Messiah. We thank you for the, for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And I ask tonight that you would truly, each one of us, lead us to the cross. Where we see tonight, in a fuller and sweeter way, your love poured out. Be worshipped. Be magnified. Bring life to what is dead in your perfect time, in your perfect way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.